We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Uh, tonight is our first event of 2015. The book, Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup, the publisher, Brookings Institution Press. And if you would, please join me as we say welcome home to the author, Andrew Zimbalist. And uh, this is mainly for our podcast audience, and maybe a few of you in here as well. Just a very quick bio on Andrew, who may not know uh, much about him, and this is very brief. Uh, Andrew is the country's preeminent sports economist, a frequent sports industry consultant and media commentator, professor at Smith College, and author of many books, including, in the baseball realm, The Sabermetric Revolution, Baseball in Billions, Circling the Bases, and In the Best Interest of Baseball. And mainly for our podcast audience, uh, do not fret, we will get to baseball tonight. Uh, what happened, just very briefly, uh, a couple months ago, Andrew contacted me and said, I have a new book coming out. Uh, can I come back to the clubhouse uh, for his third appearance? Which ties our record, by the way. <laughs> uh, and uh, I said, sure. What is the book called? Uh, uh, Circus Maximus. So, of course, I thought it was about the Mets. <laughs> As it turned out, it had nothing to do with baseball. I think the Atlanta Braves are mentioned once in this book. Uh, but... When Andrew asked, can he come back, the answer is yes, no matter what the subject is. And uh, it's an honor to welcome you back. Uh, we will get to baseball, but I think Andrew will start with the subject of the book, Circus Maximus, uh, and we will have plenty of time for questions. In the Q&A, anything goes. Olympics, baseball, whatever you want to ask, feel free. So, Andrew, it's all yours. Okay, thanks so much, Jay. It's good to be back. Let me correct one thing that you said. <laughs> Already I'm on There are at least two mentions of baseball oh, in, right. in the book. Because something very interesting happened with the Olympics in baseball. Uh, baseball, baseball got kicked out of the Olympics. Baseball and softball got kicked out of the Olympics. And, and the reason, they said, was because baseball wasn't giving them the best players. The Olympics professionalized itself in the 1980s. It used to be all amateur. Then it became pretty much all professional. But baseball players were playing baseball in the United States in the middle of the summer, and they weren't going to, teams didn't want them to go play in the Olympics. So the Olympics knocked baseball out, and they knocked softball out, by the way, at one fell swoop, even though the professionalism didn't interfere there. Um, there probably were some other things going on that had nothing to do with professionalism, uh, having to do with international politics, and having to do with the fact that back about 10 years ago, everybody in the Olympics was angry at the United States because the United States got, yes, take care of your cell phones, the United States got 12.5% of all of the international television revenue. There are, there are over 200 nations that participate in the Olympics. Each of those nations has a national Olympic committee. And some of the revenue that's generated at the Olympics is distributed by the International Olympic Committee, the IOC, to the national Olympic committees around the world. So there are over 200 of them. All of them, of course, are a lot poorer than the United States, but the United States got 12.5%. So nations were pissed off at us. 
And more likely than not, the reason they kicked baseball out was because of being irritated with the United States. Since then, they have renegotiated that percentage. The U.S. percentage went down to – it will gradually go down, and, and in the year 2020, it will be 7%. And so people are now not so angry at the United States, which is one of the reasons why um, it is a little bit more likely that Boston will, will end up being selected this time around. And it also makes it a little bit more likely that baseball will be reintroduced to the Olympics. How it will be reintroduced and what its relationship will be with the World Baseball Classic is, is a different matter. Anyway, I wasn't going to say anything about any of that, but <laughs> I, since that was the first time you've ever been inaccurate, I needed to... No, I, I wish. All right. So my, my plan is to, to, to talk for 10 or 15 minutes, giving you a, a general sense of what's in my book, and then I'm happy to entertain your comments or questions about either the Olympics and World Cup or about baseball. So <coughs> I have a very critical perspective on, on, on the World Cup and, and the Olympics. I think that the, the countries that have hosted uh, those events, with two exceptions, Los Angeles in, in 1984 and Barcelona in 1992, have not benefited economically, and some of them have been significantly hurt economically. And I think that there's an underlying structural reality that helps to understand why that happens. And that reality is that both in the case of the World Cup and the Olympics, there's a, a monopolist seller of the rights to host the games. The IOC is the monopoly that sells the rights to host the, the Olympics, and, the, and FIFA is the monopoly that sells the right to host the World Cup. And what they do is basically is they orchestrate an international competition. In the case of the Olympics, the international competition goes on for about 11 years. So what, what happened in, in this go-around which we're in the middle of now, which is the bidding for the tw hosting the 2024 Summer Olympics, is in February of 2013, the U.S. Olympic Committee sent out a letter to 50 cities around the country inviting them to participate in the U.S. competition to be the U.S. selection to participate in the international competition to host the 2024 Olympics. Um, and, of course, as you know, there, there were four finalists. There was Boston and San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Uh, and and Los, did I mention Los Angeles? San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and Boston. Uh, and Boston got picked. One of the interesting things about the fact that Boston was picked is that uh, th there was never a discussion in the Boston City Council or a vote in the Boston City Council that said that we as politicians who run our city want this to happen. And there was never a discussion or a vote in the state legislature that said, we as residents of, of Massachusetts want this to happen. The way it happened was the way it normally happens, which was that a bunch of executives, mostly from the construction industry, got together and they formed this Olympic Committee, Boston 2024, and they on their own made the bid. So what happens is first, Boston, of course, is competing against U.S. cities. And now that Boston has been selected, starting in September of this year, they will compete against international cities. The cities that currently have expressed an interest in competing are Paris and Rome and Budapest and either Berlin or Hamburg will represent Germany and Johannesburg and Durban will probably jointly have a bid from South Africa and Melbourne is involved and Doha from Qatar is involved. So there are going to be seven or eight cities around the world <coughs> excuse me, that the United States will be competing against to get the, the honor of hosting the Olympic Games. That process where you have one seller and multiple, multiple competitors is one that leads to something that economists call a, a winner's curse. 
That is, most, most of the bidders will agree with each other, more or less, that it makes sense to spend only so much on the games. And then there'll be one bidder that's an outlier that will bid more. Now, people understand that they don't bid with money, but what they bid with is the, the number of facilities and sports venues that they're going to construct and the quality of those venues. And uh, normally the ones that are the most grandiose and the most elaborate, elaborate and lavish are the ones that are making the highest bid. The bid is the amount of money you have to put into to building all of these facilities and also building an Olympic village and, and making sure that the road system is, is appropriate and public transportation connects everything efficiently and so on and so forth. So the one that is the outlier and bids the most is the one that ends up winning. Uh, and that outlier is, is, is the one that thinks that the Olympics is worth more than everybody else. And so that, that usually leads to winner's curse. It happens in baseball in the free agency market. Uh, it happens in other sports in, in free agency market. Uh, ask Alex Rodriguez if, if that happens or not. Um, so that's the starting point. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think that it's, it's, it's very hard to find winners in, in amongst, amongst the, the, the cities and the countries that host these events. So let me say a little bit about um, why I come to the other, other than the structural analysis that I, I just offered, why I think there's evidence that says that these things don't pay off. And to do that, we have to look at the cost structure and also the revenues that you get from, from hosting. London spent um, roughly $17 billion. Uh, by the way, when, whenever you read something in the newspaper that Sochi spent $51 billion and Beijing spent $44 billion, and London spent sometimes you'll see 16 or 17 billion dollars. Those numbers aren't real numbers. Uh, they're, they're sort of compromises. Uh, somebody pulled a number out of the hat, and other people start repeating it. And the, the reason why they're not real numbers is you—it's—it's it's always very difficult to decide whether a particular road that gets built is is a road that helps the city's long-term development, or it's a road that's there strictly because it's facilitating access to an Olympic venue. Uh, and people will debate that. And sometimes the road is doing both. And so if, if the road, road costs $100 million to build, what do you do, split it 50-50? But the, 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 re, the numbers that come out and the numbers that I use are not hard numbers. Um, they're, they're kind of fudge numbers and they're, they're, or they're ballpark numbers. Um, so London, London spent $17 billion, roughly, to host the Olympics in 2012. Their initial bid when, when they, uh, they went to the the National Olympic Committee of, of, of the UK, their initial bid was $5 billion, and it ended up spending $17 billion. The, a, the, average, the average cost overrun since 1976 for the Summer Olympics is 252%, which means 3.5 two times. So on average, if you bid $5 billion, you're going to end up spending somewhere in the neighborhood of 17.5. So London was kind of right in the middle of, of, of the cost overrun phenomenon. Um, the reason you get cost overruns, and this is something that will, will impact Boston, I think, very significantly if it stays in the race. The reason you get cost over, overruns is, is several fold. Number one, it's a long period of time. So we're, we're in the middle right now of, of, of the bidding for the 2024 Olympics. Um, it started, the, the letter from the USOC started back at the beginning of 2013. So you're looking at a period of, of 11 years when there's, there's cost inflation. Uh, over the period. That's one of the reasons. Another reason is that the, the international competition itself inevitably leads countries to up the ante. So what will happen is, as we start getting more and more information about who's, who's officially bidding, 
they're going to come out with plans. And, and in fact, the IOC sponsors several, uh, several meetings around the world during this period where they have the, the, the bidding countries, the applicant countries, come and make presentations. And if, if Boston wants to, to get the Olympics, they're going to have to meet what these other cities are doing. Right now, Boston has a very bare-bones proposal for the Olympic Stadium. It's a 60,000-seater without any luxury boxes and without catering and without any signage. Uh, and and the, reason that, the reason they say that they're doing this is because, well, I don't want to go into it. I'll go into it later. <laughs> um, I'm getting too far afield. So uh, when Boston starts competing officially with these other countries, many of those countries are going to have 80,000-seat Olympic stadiums, which is the old standard, and they'll have luxury boxes, and they'll have club seats. And so if Boston wants to stay in the competition, they're going to have to up their, up their ante. Uh, but it makes sense for them at this stage to have a low ball because if, it has, if they have a low ball, then they can go to the city council and they go to the state legislature, which they are doing, and saying, we're not spending very much money, and in fact, we're not going to need, need any public money. So once the Boston City Council signs on and the Massachusetts legislature signs on, then they can start adding the bells and whistles, and, and it becomes, uh, becomes much more feasible. Um, so that's that's basically what's going roughly what's going on on the cost side. I can go into much much more detail if you like at analyzing and critiquing what's the, the particular Boston bid and why it's why they're going to end up using billions of dollars of public money rather than zero public money. So that's on the cost side. On the revenue side, here's what happens: the IOC shares approximately one third of the international television money with the host. So right now, the, the international television money for the Summer Olympics is about $2.1 billion. So they give $700 million of that money to the host. Another chunk of money is the ticket sales. London had about $990 million of revenue from ticket sales. Then there's a chunk of money from corporate sponsorships. There's domestic corporate sponsorships and international corporate sponsorships. Uh, London had $1.4 billion, small of that. And then there's licensing and the sale of, of, of stamps and, and other memorabilia. Put it all together, and London had, in, from all of these revenue sources, about $3.5 billion of revenue. So that's $3.5 billion on one side of revenue and roughly $17 billion of costs on the <laughs> other side. How is that made up? If, if Lord Sebastian Coe was sitting in this seat now, he would say, well, what happens is that we, we got to be on the world stage, and there were billions of, billions of television sets around, around the world that were tuned in to the London Olympics. And so this was great promotional value and advertising value for our city. And not only will it attract tourists to, uh, to London in the future, but it will attract foreign investment, and it will increase trade between London and the rest of the world, and all of this will generate employment. And so we're going to more than make up that, that deficit in the balance between Three and a half billion, and fifteen or seventeen or whatever uh, number you want to pick. Well, the the economic evidence—that is to say, evidence that's been produced by economists like myself who don't have an axe to grind, or, or, aren't, or at least we're not being paid by one side or another uh, to produce an, a nice report or a critical report, but we're trying to understand what's actually happening. And then we publish articles. We use econometrics, and we control for the relevant variables, and we publish these things in, in scholarly journals, which means that they are vetted by our by other colleagues to make sure that the methodology is clean. The studies that uh, have been published about this say that those so-called benefits, long-run benefits, with regard to increased tourism, 
or with regard to more foreign investment or employment or, or trade in the long run aren't there. There are a few cases, as I said, where you can argue that there, there was some gain, and, uh, and I'll, in a moment I'll come back and, and talk about that. But one of the things that's been quite interesting over the last several Olympic Games is that it used to be, it used to be assumed that there was a short-run gain in tourism, that all, the, the whole Olympic family would come over. You have 10,500 athletes. You have their family members who come. You have the executives who come. Uh, you have the media who comes, descends on, on your city. And there are a lot of people. There are probably uh, 25,000, 30,000 people in, in that contingent. All, all are coming for the Olympics. And then you have the, 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 the fans who are coming to watch. And so there's always the sense that you're going to get a lot of income for your, a lot of revenue is going to be generated, a lot of economic, economic activity will be generated uh, in your city from all of these people who are coming to your town. Well, it turns out that London actually had 5% fewer visitors during August of 2012 than it had during August of 2011. Beijing had 20% fewer tourist arrivals in August of 2008 than it had in the previous August. Uh, and the numbers afterwards haven't gotten any better. Uh, so w what's going on? Well, what seems to be going on is that people like to stay away, unless they're true Olympic fans. They like to stay away from London when they're having the Olympics, or they like to stay away from New York when it's having the Super Bowl, as it, as it did last, last year. Uh, and the reason they want to stay away is because they anticipate congestion, they anticipate high prices, they understand that there might be some additional security issues uh, to be in the city at that point in time, and they say, let's, let's go somewhere else this year. The other thing that's going on on the tourist front is that there are some very interesting analyses done by an organization called the European Tour Operators Association. And what they have concluded is this, that it hurts tourism in the long run to host the Olympics. And the reason it hurts it in the long run is because even though London had 5% fewer tourists, the tourists who were there were overwhelmingly there for the Olympic Games. They come home and they talk to their friends, neighbors, and relatives, and they say to them, I had a great time in London. You know, I, I saw a 100-meter relay, and I, I saw this event, and I saw that event, I saw the pentathlon. Um, that's the Olympic tourist coming home and talking about it. The normal tourist comes home and says that I went to the London Theater, I went to the British Museum, I saw Big Ben, whatever, whatever that, that tourist says, they come back and they talk about things that are enduring cultural artifacts of London. Uh, and somebody they're saying this to can say, oh, I want to go see those things. But they can't say, oh, I want to go see the 100-meter relay that, that you watched. Uh, and what the European Tour Operators Association says the best way to promote tourism is word of mouth. So you lose that value uh, from, from the, the one-month period of, of hosting the games. Uh, what did I say a moment ago I wanted to come back to? Nobody Boston. remembers? Huh? Boston. Boston, I'd like to come back. No, but what else? City's benefited from uh, Oh, see, so let, me, let me just talk for a minute about Los Angeles and Barcelona, and then I'll, I'll throw it open to, to questions. Some of you are old enough to remember what I'm about to say, and some of you might not be. But in 1968, there were Summer Olympics in Mexico City. Uh, those games were marred by violence. There was a student protest, and over 200 students were killed at that protest. Uh, it was the Olympics when John Carlos and I can't remember the other fellow's name. Smith. Huh? 
Smith. Tommy, yeah, Tommy Smith. Uh, it, it, this was uh, right after the assassination of Martin Luther King. We had a lot of r- racial politics, extant racial politics in our country. Uh, so they, they were on the medals, plat- the medals plat- platform and they raised the Black Power salute. They got kicked off the team. There were protests by other black athletes there. Anyway, there's a lot of unsavory, ugly things that were going on in the, in the Mexican Olympics. And also the commentators were constantly talking about the air pollution. Um, for, and how it was hurting the athletes. Then in 1972, you had Munich. You should remember the, the terrorist in, in invasion of the Israeli compound. Eleven Israelis were killed. Uh, five five of, of the, uh, the terrorists were killed. One German police person was killed. Uh, it had a very bad aftertaste, the Munich Olymp- Olympics. And, and in 1976, the Olympics were hosted in Montreal. Uh, the, the management of the games was, was completely bungled. And it was so mismanaged that the, the local organizing committee of the Olympic Games had to be kicked out, and the, the uh, administrators from the province of, of, of Quebec had to take over the administration. And it turns out that the cost overrun in Montreal was 9.2 times the initial bid. So when you get to the late 70s, you had three very negative images that had come out of the, last, the previous three Olympics, and nobody wanted a bid to host the 1984 Olympics. Moscow had already been slated to host the 1980 Olympics, and and there were lots of disagreements about who was going to boycott and who wasn't. (coughs) So nobody wanted a bid. And finally, a a private group in Los Angeles, led by Peter Ubaroth, came forward and said, we'll host the 1984 Olympics on a couple of conditions. Number one, you let us use the facilities that we have still from the 1932 (coughs) Olympics that they hosted. Uh, and number two, that you backstop the games, you IOC, both the USOC and the IOC, <coughs> excuse me, backstop the games financially. So if we have any deficits, that you'll cover them. And the IOC, for the only time ever, said, yes, we'll do that. Peter Uberoff then went on to uh, innovate with, with corporate sponsorship models, and, and he was very aggressive in that front and very successful. And they ran the games very successfully. And at the end of it all, because of these special features that they didn't have to – they, they built two or three very small venues uh, with corporate money, uh, but they didn't have to put any of their own money into it. All the other venues were already there. The transportation, communications infrastructure was already there. They ended up with a $215 million surplus from, from the games in, in 1984. So I don't think it was it was a great boon to the Los Angeles economy, but it was probably something that was, was positive. <coughs> Um, the other case is, is Barcelona in 1992. I have to go back a few years to explain what happened there. But basically what happened is what Franco died, the dictator Franco died in 1975. Franco had neglected for 40 years the whole Catalonian region, and Barcelona is part of that region. Uh, and the other thing was that the, there, there was no effective governing regulation of, of where industry developed in Barcelona. So what happened in Barcelona, which is this lovely city sitting on the Mediterranean Sea, is that a, a, an industrial or manufacturing belt sprung up along, along the water, and then a warehousing belt was there too. And so this, the main blocks of the city were blocked from the sea by this belt of, of industry and warehousing. And, and so after the, after the death of Franco and uh, the in, installation of, of democracy, People got together and they said, we want to redesign our city. And one of the things they wanted, they had some road plans, and one of, the, one of the major things they wanted to do was to reopen the city to the sea and, and relocate that, that, that whole area. 
so they were developing this plan in the late 1970s and, and uh, in the early 1980s, and they had the plan pretty well set. And then the idea came, maybe we, should, we can host the Olympics uh, and, and we can fit in the, uh, the, the needed Olympic infrastructure and make it work synergistically with the plan that we already have. Barcelona is the only city that I know of that's done that. Invariably, what happens is the opposite. That, that sequence is reversed, which is that there is no plan, there is no design, there is no vision for the city, but the city has some people in it, like the construction industry people, who decide that, gee, this would be nice to have uh, all of this construction going on and hosting the Olympics. Uh, and, and they, as, as they did in Boston, they lead the effort and they, they bring the politicians along. Uh, and the first thing that they do is take care of the IOC. They have to have 32 venues. They have to have an Olympic village. They have to have a media center. They need an Olympic stadium. And those things have to have transportation that connect them. And so everything is built around the Olympics. And then, they, as an afterthought, they shoehorn a few ideas in that were part of the city's plan. Um, and that becomes what happens. In Barcelona, it was, the whole causality was reversed. So that, I think, is the fundamental element of what was good about Barcelona. But also, Barcelona joined the European Common Market in 1987. Euro the European airlines were deregulated in the early 90s, which, made, which created a lot of airlines that produced very low airfares. So there's much more, uh, much more communication and transportation of people around, uh, around Europe. Uh, and the other thing about Barcelona is that, in large measure, because of... of the way things were developing during Franco is that it, it wasn't a, a tourist attraction. It was kind of an undiscovered jewel or gem. It, it's a city, as I said before, that has a wonderful location, has great climate, wonderful culture, spectacular architecture. Uh, and w once Barcelona was able to open itself up to the world and being able to, to have the Olympics and, and begin to show the new Barcelona contributed to all of that. Uh, but most cities, I think, I think it's true for Boston that people pretty much know, as they do for New York, they know what the cultural appeals are of Boston, what the touristic appeals are. It wouldn't be, gee, this is a revelation. The Olympics helped us dis help us discover that uh, that the Boston Commons is in Boston, or or that Paul Revere uh, rode his ride in Boston, or whatever. All right, so I've, I think I've gone on longer than, than I wanted to, and I'm happy to listen to any comments or, or questions. Yeah? I was waiting for you to start talking about the World Cup. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Hey, yeah. all this way. Okay. <laughs> so do you want me to just do 20 minutes on the World Cup now? Fine by me. <laughs> um, well, I, uh, yeah, so I, I, be, I become kind of, kind of obsessed with the Olympics because I'm a Massachusetts resident and I'm trying to hold on to my wallet a little bit. And, <laughs> um, but look, the, 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 the basic dynamic that I was describing at, at, at the beginning uh, is, is uh, around the one seller and, and multiple, multiple bidders happens with FIFA. FIFA actually tried an experiment that was an interesting one a few years ago. They decided to do a continental rotation, which is to say that they, they would say, they would, when the bidding was starting, they would say, okay, now it's South America's turn. Okay, now it's Europe's turn. Now it's Asia's turn. And, and so the, the amount of competition would be limited. It would be restricted to one continent. Um, and the, the one year that they tried it, it was for South America. Now it was South America's turn. And there was only one bidder, which was which was Brazil, and they didn't like that outcome, and so they switched it. Um, now they have a system that's a little bit more complicated, um, 
But anyway, the, the basic dynamic that produces the winner's curse, I think, is, is, is present there as well. Um, FIFA, of course, is a much more corrupt organization uh, than the IOC, which can complicate matters um, because it means that there are payoffs going on and sometimes the construction companies are involved in those payoffs and so the, the cost overruns can, can be even greater with FIFA. The situation that just happened with the World Cup in Brazil, uh, I think, in, in 2014 was, was calamitous almost. Uh, they had, a, they had an internal political problem in Brazil, which is that <coughs> once Brazil said that, uh, well, once FIFA said Brazil was going to host the 2014 World Cup, different cities wanted to have the competitions in their city. And there, there was something like 19 or 20 cities that were saying, we want to have it, we want to have it. Uh, and one of the ways that was resolved was that instead of having eight different stadiums, which is what FIFA requires, Brazil had 12 different stadiums. Many of the stadiums they built were, were built in cities that, even though Brazil itself is very immersed in, in soccer culture, uh, there are still outlying cities in Brazil that are not particularly into soccer, uh, like Manaus, and even like Brasilia, um, where Brasilia has a third-tier team. Soccer leagues are structured with they have the, the best league, like the Premier League, and then the second-best league, and the third-best, and they have promotion and relegation of teams going up and down the hierarchy unlike closed leagues in the United States where stick, leagues, teams stick in a league. But in, in, in Brasilia, which is the nation's capital, they had only a third-tier team in, in, in a third-tier league. In Manaus, they had a, a second-tier team. Uh, Manaus is way up in the Amazon. They built a stadium in Manaus for $400 million that had 42,000 capacity uh, that's sitting there now. Uh, it's, it's used by the second tier team they get about 1100 people per game <laughs> they, 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 they charge 2 or 3 dollars for tickets and so not only are they spending 400 million dollars building the stadium but you have to spend millions of dollars to maintain the stadium and the amount of revenue that they're generating um, is, is a pittance in, in relationship to that in, in Brasilia they have a stadium of 80,000 capacity that costs 750 million to, uh, to build uh, so you, I think in recent, and there's situations like that, the Greenpoint Stadium in, in South Africa. South Africa's main, the 2010 hosts were South Africa, was South Africa. And their main sport is rugby. It's not, it's not soccer. Um, so they built all the, I think that they have nine stadiums that they either built or renovated. Six were freshly built and three were renovated. Um, but they were building stadiums in places that didn't have soccer teams at all. And they built the fancy stadium in, in, um, uh, in, I can't remember the name of the town now. Anyway, that's that's basically what I would say, and I, I should probably stop there unless you have a specific question. No, I, I just yeah. think that FIFA seems to be even worse than the IOC. Isn't it? <laughs> the IOC got their wings clipped back in Salt Lake City, or was, was it, there seemed to be a big scandal back then with the Olympics? So I'm not saying they're not doing it anymore, but it just seems FIFA's really... In, in so FIFA, yeah, so I, the IOC reformed itself a little bit because yeah. it, be, it, it became known... That uh, that what, what used to happen un, under the leadership, the IOC leadership of Juan Antonio Samaranch, who was a, who was a Spaniard uh, and also a Francoist, uh, who used to re he became the IOC leader in, in 1980. Used to require that people called him Your Excellency, Your Excellency. <laughs> um, he 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 started the practice of taking all of the members of the executive committee. Which I think today there are 107, I believe, 
there may have been 80-something back then, he would take them all to each of the cities that were bidding for the games. And he would require that the cities pay for their transportation and that they wine and dine them when they were there. So what started to happen was that each city would go a little bit further with wining and dining and having escorts available. And, oh, you have a child that she'd like to come study at the University of, of Utah. Uh, we can take care of her tuition and, <laughs> and on and on. And so that, that, was, that was revealed. And so what basically what happened was that after that, the IOC said that, that the members of the executive committee will not travel to the, the different cities that, that are bidding. And so they've cleaned it up some. Um, and it's, it's unclear that FIFA has taken that, has taken that step. I mean, it's, you know, one of the things that happened with, with, with the World Cup is, is that uh, uh, Qatar was chosen to, to host the games in 2022. Qatar doesn't have a soccer culture. They have a small population. They don't have soccer stadiums. And the temperature there in the summertime when the World Cup is played is 120 degrees. Um, and and, and, and one, one is esti- many people are estimating that it's going to cost them about $200 billion to, to host these games. On top of all of that, it's very evident, and now there's evidence that has been produced by the London Times through, through uh, email, doc- email documentation, that they, they, they bought it, that Qatar, Qatar bought the, the, the rights. Or they, they're, they're bought, they bought the votes of, of uh, FIFA voters. Um, and FIFA bought, built, excuse me, Qatar beat out the United States and they beat out uh, England in, in that effort. And Australia, I think. Australia as well. But people were looking at the United States. The United States hosted in 1994 the, the, the World Cup. And by many measures, it was the most successful. First of all, we didn't spend very much money because we were using existing soccer stadiums. Um, and secondly, it had by far and away the highest attendance at any World Cup anywhere in the world. Yeah. And we, since we hadn't, we hadn't hosted the games in the United States since 1994, and this would be 2022, it's almost a 30-year period, people thought that the United States was going to get it. Bill Clinton flew over with Sunil Gulati uh, and all sorts of other people to make the presentation, and people were just flabbergasted. Uh, Anyway, so other questions? Yes? Do you think there is another um, Barcelona out there, in, uh, irrespective of the cities that are currently bidding for the next Olympics? Is there another Barcelona out there? <coughs> Barcelona in the sense that they're a city that has the, the political wherewithal to develop a vision for the city and develop a plan for the city and then fit the Olympics into that? I guess that... I don't know of any city that's that like that. Or, or two, like in L.A., that can still kind of make it, make it work. But basically, do you think it's a sucker's bet for any city that's ever vying for the Olympics in the future? <coughs> no. But I think they'd have to have the special conditions that either L.A. had or, <laughs> or Barcelona had. And I, I, I think it makes sense to talk about reforming the system. So one of the reforms that I think would be really productive or constructive is for FIFA and the IOC to go back to the continental rotation system that FIFA tried for a while so that every four years there's a new continent that will be the host. So we, we would know, since there are six continents every four years, every 24 years, the United States or Canada, being the North American continent, would get to host the games. And so any competition that emerged would only be within Canada and the United States, not across the whole world. So that'd be one idea. Another idea that would have to be implemented by the continents themselves is that they should only have one city within the continent that does it all the time. 
So I think there are, there are ways to reform the system and, 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 and still create the Olympics as a grandiose, exciting affair um, that would have less exploitation. Yes. Is there a difference in the profit and loss of uh, Summer Universal Winter Olympics? The the um, the Summer Olympics is is roughly twice as large in, in revenue and and a little bit more than twice as large in terms of the number number of participants and number of, of athletes in terms of the number of countries who participate it's about a three to one margin more summer than, than winter but in terms of the outcomes. <laughs> Um, no, there, one can't look and say the Winter Olympics produce economic value in the summer. Don't it's, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty uh, evenly distributed. Yes, uh, you mentioned uh, some of the quantitative benefits of hosting Olympics: the revenue and the expense. I was surprised to see uh, a chapter where you looked at the so-called qualitative benefits of hosting the Olympics, and one of the Aspects is to eradicate racism. Could you address? Oh, I don't argue that. No, you. I don't argue that. No. No, no. You, you don't argue. I don't argue. I'm saying. So what here? So if you if you look at any of you can go to the IOC site and at the IOC site you you'd be able to find the official Olympic report for each of the the different Olympic games and they have a long list of qualitative benefits that come. Um, one of them is volunteerism, which I think is true. I think that you, there is a spirit, generally speaking. I don't think it happened in Brazil with the World Cup, but it generally happens that a city mobilizes and gets excited about the games, and there's several thousand volunteers. So I think that one is true. I think there is a psychic benefit. Unfortunately, it's fleeting. It lasts for a couple of months. Um, another benefit that they talk about is that people will become... More, uh, more inclined to exercise, and so phys- physical fitness will improve. There, the empirical evidence there is lacking. Uh, in fact, the number of people who engage in—I uh, in, don't—I can't remember how they define it—but it's something like two hours a week of exercise. The number of people who do that in the UK and London went down in 2013, and it went down again in London in 2014. So then there are other kinds of claims that are made that. Um, uh, host countries learn learn the the values of, of the Olympics. The Olympic movement, which which began in the the 1890s, or the modern Olympic movement, uh, talks about internationalism. It talks about peace. It talks about racial harmony. Uh, and so there's this notion that some of some of all of this is infused into the the host city that they will become somehow more civilized along several of these dimensions. Um, yeah, so there are a lot of qualitative benefits that are claimed. I guess I don't treat them seriously enough to... Um, I, did, I do talk about the, the exercise thing in the book, and I do talk about, about volunteerism. But uh, unless you put a really, really high value on those things, then, then the, the calculus that I was suggesting, I think, is, is, is pretty uh, compelling. Yes? Uh, putting aside the economics of it, aren't there places like, uh, say, Germany in 36, and the Russians and the Chinese... They don't care about the money. They just want the Olympics for either personal hubris of the, the head of the country or some nationalistic reason or something sure. like that. Sure, yeah. So it's not the money doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm, but I'm not adopting the perspective of Hitler or, <laughs> uh, or, or Putin. Uh, yeah, I mean, he had, he, Putin had his reasons for doing what he did in Sochi, and they're going to host the next World Cup in, in 2000. 
and 18. I'm trying, I'm trying to ask the question, how, how does it affect the people in a country? How does it affect the broader, broader economy? I think that one, you know, one of the more problematic things for me is that when, and I said this about Boston, but it's, I think it's true across the board, that the, the private individuals who are supporting these things are coming from the construction industry primarily, with support from the construction trades, the construction unions, and then there's some ancillary groups around that that will also get excited about it. Sometimes there's some hospitality interests, hotel interests that get excited about it. Uh, sometimes there's some architectural firms, some insurance firms, some media companies that get excited about it. And invariably, there'll be an investment bank that's going to float the bonds, that they'll get excited about it. And there'll be some lawyers who work for all of those groups who will get excited about it. And you, ha you have, you have a, um, a consortium of private interests that carry the thing through. And it's good for them. It's good for them. You, there's, there's, there's data that shows construction industry profits go way up when a country hosts host the World Cup. But I'm asking the question not about a particular leader or a particular <coughs> sector of the economy, but how does it affect the economy broadly? Yeah. You said that uh, when Uberoff ran the Olympics in '84, that he got the IOC to agree to you know subsidize it if they had a loss. And you said that LA made 215 million dollars that year. So my question is, does that mean that the IOC didn't have to put any money into the yes. pot? Yeah. Yeah. They did not put any money into the pot. Yeah. Uh, I guess to kind of further that question, actually. Uh, relative to other years, how did the IOC perform during the 1984 Olympics? Is that a legitimate revenue model that they could continue? How did the IOC perform? Yes. What, when you, what does that mean? You mean? How much revenue did they get? Relative to other years, how much revenue did they get in 1984? Uh, not very much. Yeah, but they, there was a national television contract that's in my book. I can look it up, but they're much, much smaller than, than they are now. And the IOC back then was sharing about 55% of that with the host city. Now they're doing 33%. Um, they didn't have a very effective corporate sponsorship model. Uh, Uberoth was the one who introduced exclus exclusivity in corporate sponsorships. He was so successful that in the following year, 1985, the IOC introduced the top, their top program, which does have exclusive scholarships. So licensing money, excuse me, corporate sponsorship money went way, way up after that. Um, so the IOC, um, probably my, my guess off the top of my head, probably netted about $200 million that year. So it's small relative to, the, to today's numbers. Uh, yeah. Is there a plan B with the Olympics or the World Cup? Yet Sochi, everyone's saying, well, this is actually going to happen if the hotels aren't built. You have the Rio World Cup. They're saying if Copa doesn't work out, are they going to shift it to the U.S.? Is that a real economic realization that someone's planning for? Is there a... a they will, well, they'll, never, they'll never admit to it. But, you know, they'll never Korea, admit to it. So, what, so there are some issues. I mean, there's some interesting cases that you could look at. In, in 1970, the IOC awarded Denver the right to host the Winter Games in 1976. Back, back then, the Winter Games and the Summer Games happened in the same year, and that changed in 1992 because they didn't want corporations to have to uh, sp split their, their sponsorship money between the two games. Uh, but 76, Denver was supposed to host the Games. In 1972, the citizens of Denver mobilized and, and uh, organized a referendum. They had a referendum that overwhelmingly voted against hosting the Games because of their cost and because of the environmental impact. IOC went back to Innsbruck, which had hosted the games in the 1960s, and said, would you be willing to host them again? That was, so that turned out to be plan B. 
Uh, we might see some Plan B movement uh, with regard to the 2022 Winter Olympics because what happened there was that um, as of about 14 months ago, you had bidders from uh, Lviv in the Ukraine, from Stockholm, Sweden, from Krakow, Poland, from Munich, Germany, and from Oslo, Norway. You had five, five bidders um, from, from Greater Europe. All of them dropped out. Uh, three, three of them dropped out because referendums voted them down. Norway dropped out two months ago because uh, Oslo went ahead with the bid, and the government of Norway was asked to back it up financially, and they said, we're not doing this. So they, they, they pulled out. And now the, the IOC is left with two potential hosts. One of them is Almaty, Kazakhstan. And, the, and, the other, and nobody believes they have the wherewithal to do that. And the other, the other is, is Beijing. Now, they have the wherewithal probably, but the, prop, the main problem with Beijing is that Beijing is in the northern part of the country, and there's unbelievable water shortage. Uh, it, it, it's catastrophic water shortage in, in northern China. And the, the mountains where they want to host it gets, get very little precipitation. So their, their plan is to, to have artificial snow, which means using water. Um, and and the, if the IOC ended up picking, picking Beijing, they'd come on, since they claim that they're into sustainability, uh, they, they'd come <laughs> under a lot of criticism. And so, they, you know, what, I don't know what, what the plan B is, but they might, they might have to, maybe they'll go back to Innsbruck. They'll have to come up with, <laughs> have to come up with something. Uh, but they'll never admit to you. Uh, they've been asked several times about about Rio hosting the games in 2016, and Rio's got big time problems. Uh, you know, they had the Guanabara Bay where they're supposed to have the sailing and, and boating contests. That that bay is not only polluted in terms of, of, of filth, but it's polluted in terms of having floating television sets in it and floating refrigerators in it. <laughs> Um, and people have gone out there and sailed and, and, and uh, you know, tried to test the conditions, and everybody comes back and says, you know, I ruined my boat. This is not acceptable. Um, so I don't know what they're going to do about that. And they have a golf course that keeps on uh, getting postponed because of environmental challenges. They're building it in the marshland. It's very environmentally sensitive. Uh, you're supposed to plant, plant golf course grass two, two years before you use it. That's optimal. Uh, and now they've, they've got uh, basically little more little more than a year. Uh, but they still they still can't go forward with it because it's being adjudicated in the courts. The courts the last time the courts made a decision about it, they wanted them to move the golf course further to the north. But then there was a, 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 a developer that said, you can't do that because I have a development a development planned over there. And, and so it's, it's a big mess. And so they're going to have to be, they're talking about moving some of the events from Rio to Sao Paulo. Um, so I'm sure that there will be some miniature plan, plan Bs, but I don't, I don't know if there's a... The, the idea of walking away from Rio Korea altogether, I don't example. think... Huh? Korea as an example. Uh, war breaks out. Worst case scenario. Who's, where does it go? Okay, right. Well, there are a lot of issues. Not so much time, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, even talk, there was even talk about you know, moving the, the Sochi Olympics because of all of the terrorism. In, that was in Volgograd beforehand and, and in, in, the, in the surrounding mountains. Somebody else? You, I'm also, if you don't, we can do some baseball. Just we're, oh, we'll get to, I'll, I'll, I'll get to baseball. Okay. <laughs> I don't, whatever you need, it's okay with me. Yeah. So the cities and the states and countries play the ball. Uh, they, they lose money. What's the shape of FIFA and uh, the 
FIFA has $2 billion in, in reserve. It's not bad, right? $2 billion in reserve that they invest. Uh, it's more than $2 billion. It passed $2 billion in the last World Cup. Because they never so many on the rest, right? What FIFA, what FIFA FIFA's on a new system right now where they get all of the revenues. They don't share any revenues with the, the, the host country, but they cover all of the operating costs. Um, so in that sense, there's there's a risk. Just a couple of examples of how Boston is going to wind up spending a lot of money, even though they've been saying they're not going to spend any. Sure. So one of the, the lots of things. One, one of the things is that they assumed in their bid documents that the United States would pay for security. Security costs at the Olympics these days are two billion dollars, and the, the, my 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 sense is that they're going to go higher. They simply assume that the United States is going to cover them. The United States will declare it a special national security event. The Super Bowl has declared that also. Uh, the United States covers some of the security expenditures for the Super Bowl, but the local government also covers some of them. Whether the United States covers a billion dollars or $200 million or $1.8 billion is all subject to negotiation and legislation. There's nothing automatic there. Boston is assuming that the United States is going to pick up the, in, the entire tab. All right. Let me let me pass along to uh, the, the the largest single. There are three different budgets, by the way. There's the what's called the OCOG budget, which is the, the budget for operating the games during the 17 days. That's 4.7 billion dollars. There's a, a, a venue budget for some of the venues that they say they're going to have to build, which is 3.4 billion dollars. And then there's they have a 5.2 billion dollar infrastructure budget which is the roads and the parking lots and so on. Now, they say that that $5.2 billion has already been allocated by the city council to be spent, so it's not new money. It's not going to encumber any public dollars. Here's the, here's the reality of that. The, 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 the city council last year passed a bond bill that authorizes the city to issue bonds over the next 20 years for projects that will take place over the next 20 years. The Olympics, if Boston gets them, are nine and a half years away. Uh, so they're saying that, that all of these infrastructural projects are, are, are covered, but they're not covered in, in the time period that they need to be covered by. And if you, go, if you break them down, you find that about half of them are, in fact, covered that, during that period. So what you'd have to do is to what they the euphemistically called advance the projects. A project that's slated to happen in, in 2029 would have to now happen in, in 2022. When you advance a project, it means you're taking money that's not there, which means you have to kick out some other governmental project. So you're, you're, trading, off, you're trading off other social services or government services for, for accelerating some of these infrastructure. So that's, that's one element of that. Another element of that, I don't know if any of you are aware of this or not, but we had a, um, a ballot initiative back, back in November uh, to see if, if uh, the citizens of Massachusetts were willing to have the gas tax indexed to index it means to make it go up with inflation. Uh, and every every dollar that's collected by the gas tax goes to a transportation budget. Citizens of Massachusetts voted down the indexing, which left a $2 billion deficit in the next 10 years in the transportation budget, which means that of that $5.2 billion, there's only actually $3.2 billion that's available. So that, that's, that's another issue there. 
The head of the, the State Legislature Transportation Committee gave a, an interview yesterday where he said, as far as he can tell, that the actual costs for doing what they say they're going to do is $13 billion. It's not $5.2 billion. Anyway, I, so I can go on and on with this stuff, but I, I think that uh, another very interesting thing is this. One, one last thing, and then I'll stop. <laughs> uh, they, the, the bid committee, Boston 2024, refused to make any of the bid documents available to the public. Then they came under more and more criticism, and they finally said, okay, we'll make some of the bid documents available, and some of them are proprietary. We can't make them available. So of the ones they made available, we discovered that in the bid document, these are, these are documents that they submit to the USOC when the USOC is trying to decide who to, who to choose, whom to choose amongst the, the four cities. Uh, in those bid documents, they represent that they have to use so much land in order to, they have to take so much land in order to build the venues and, and the, the transportation routes and so on and so forth. And they represent that 25% uh, that of the land that they need to take is privately owned and they have entered negotiations with the private owners uh, in order to buy the land from them, and it's proceeding favorably, okay? So the, the land that they need to build the Olympic Stadium on uh, has this very large, thriving business on it, and the land that they need to build the Olympic Village has another very large, thriving business, and the day after the bids come out, uh, the bids are made public, the, propri the proprietors of those businesses say, it's news to me, they never talk, they never talk to us, and these are the, you know, the two most important structures that, that there are at the Olympics, the Olympic Village and the Olympic Stadium. They never talk to us about it, and we're actually planning to expand our operations. We want to buy new land, and there's no way on earth we're going to sell them that land. Um, it, I, think, I think there's a reasonable chance, the way things are going, that um, and the, one of the city councilors called for a referendum in Boston. I think there's a reasonable chance that the thing is going to get, get, going to get thwarted. By the way, a very interesting thing that, that applies for all of the uh, Olympic, uh, all, of, all of the Olympics that have occurred in modern times is that the IOC requires the, the bidding city, the mayor of the bidding city, to sign a document that says city workers are not allowed to criticize either the, IO, <laughs> either the IOC or the city potentially hosting. <laughs> so Mayor Walsh signed it. Marty Walsh signed the thing, and, and uh, it's unconstitutional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there, there are lots of court cases that make it very clear that if, if you're a city worker, uh, you can't say, as a city worker, speaking on behalf of the city, I think the IOC is bad. You can't do that. And if you're a city worker who has a job that's necessary to accomplish the, the Olympic tasks, you court cases would say you can't, you, you too don't have First Amendment rights. But then the other 95% of city workers have, have First Amendment rights that Mayor Walsh has signed away. Anyway, other questions? Well, before, be, just one sec, before you get to your question, just be, uh, due to time constraints with the podcast, I just have to say farewell to this part of the podcast audience. Again, the book, Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup, published by Brookings Institution Press by Andrew Zimbalist. That's the end of part one.